and welcome to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media Networks, and our conversation this week will appeal to anyone who works with data and is charged with communicating that data clearly and efficiently. Our guest is Mike Goodman, soccer writer and managing editor for StatsBomb.com and co-host of the Double Pivot podcast. Mike is one of the better writers at bringing together data and a tactical eye and then producing easy-to-understand articles that appeal to a broad audience. The impetus for having him on is an article he wrote last week with the title, A Case Study in Using Data to Prepare to Administer the Eye Test. As he'll explain, he wrote the piece after the expected goals numbers from an MLS playoff game didn't seem to match the eye test, and he wanted to figure out why. So we'll walk through his process for writing that article, talk about how he approaches data while he's watching games and when he's less familiar with the team, keys to using numbers well in writing, what he wants to see from player tracking data, what he took away from the recent StatsBomb conference, and of course, his favorite things about living in Latvia. Then True Media's Albert Larcata will join me for a reaction and to wrap things up. Now, without further ado, here's the Expected Value Conversation with Mike Goodman. We are joined now on Expected Value by Mike Goodman, managing editor of StatsBomb.com and co-host of the Double Pivot podcast. He is basically runs the editorial side of the soccer data and analytics company of StatsBomb. Mike, welcome to the show. Before we walk through the process of your article from last week, let's give everyone an overview of kind of how you got here. And let's start on the soccer side. How did you first get into soccer? You are an American, as people will find out momentarily. How did your interest in the game develop over the years? Oh, thanks for having me, and thanks for removing any temptation to do a British accent. Um, <laughs> I was a fan of the U.S. men's national team growing up, but casually. And I think it was probably the 2006 World Cup where I sort of converted, as it were. I was I had just graduated from, from college. I was working from home, uh, actually playing poker professionally. And I just had every match on that tournament. And then when that tournament ended, I didn't stop watching. I started watching more and, and, and more. Around that time is when it became easier to find on television. So I was able to watch a lot of matches. And then sort of from there, over the course of doing other stuff professionally, it was a pretty big hobby. And as data started to become available, I am a nerd. I am an analytics person. I, I describe my sort of professional career over a number of careers as being somebody who explains numbers to people who aren't necessarily comfortable with numbers. And it seemed to me there was just this this gaping void in the soccer world for that. And so I did that for a while and was lucky enough to get an opportunity to write professionally uh, about exactly that. First at Grantland, then at ESPN. I overlapped with you uh, for a little mm -hmm. bit. And then um, sort of about 18 months ago, I moved over to StatsBomb. So I'm doing the same sort of thing from the other direction, from the direction of the, the company that does data. So from a data and analytics standpoint, you kind of touched on it there. What's your background in that regard? Like outside yeah, of sports, sure. outside of soccer? Yeah. Your, your um, number so, history, if you will. Right. I've got an undergraduate degree, which is in part in economics. And then I played poker professionally for a couple of years. I worked on Wall Street um, for a couple of years. Again, in a role where I was, I was sort of a go-between for a lot of my job between somebody who was very numbers proficient and somebody who was not at all numbers proficient, my boss and his boss. I wrote finance for a while um, and as my life changed a bunch because my wife 
my now wife began in the foreign service, so we were moving all over the world. So I sort of transitioned into a, a writing career, and then that's where I sort of saw this this gap. And uh, first as a hobby on the side, and then professionally wrote about numbers and soccer. Yeah, the, that role of kind of I was a translator between numbers yeah, people exactly and not. That. that job exists at so many levels. I mean, it's a media thing. I did it at ESPN. It's so many team analysts have to be able to tread those things. So it's a pretty good. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's I a think good it's skill. A, it's hard to teach in some ways. You just kind of have to do it. Yeah, and I think it's an underrated thing in terms of on the professional sports side, whereas you know we see sort of the word analytics within sports become more accepted. A lot of the question is what teams are actually able to you know, deploy that knowledge. You know, a lot more teams than a decade ago or 15 years ago have somebody who they pay to do quote unquote analytics. But getting from there to actually implementing it within a team is a challenge. And a lot of that has to do with how do you bring those numbers to an audience, in this case, you know, coaches, ownership players who aren't conversant in it and how do you how do you bring it to them in language that they can understand yep so that kind of leads us to the article you posted on stats bomb last week the article is entitled a case study on using data to prepare to administer the eye test let's just start with the impetus for it this is obviously something that we talk about and deal with in these roles all the time what prompted you to write the article this time around well the writer in me got mad on the internet and the editor in me told me to put it on the website <laughs> Um, there was, so I guess this, this was a, uh, an MLS playoff match between Dallas and Seattle and somebody tweeted something to the effect of, of numbers are ruining the sport because the expected goal balance of the match was clearly in Seattle's favor. As an analyst, he thought that Dallas had played better. And I think he, he sort of walked that back in, in a way that I think is fine yep. in which he said, actually numbers are neutral, but you have to use them in context, which is somebody that anybody who, something that anybody who works in numbers can agree with. Yep. But what was interesting to me is I saw um, Matt Doyle who writes um, for major league soccer and is, is somebody whose opinions about the game I respect a lot agreed with, with that assessment that Seattle had much more expected goals, didn't play better. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. What's going on here in this match? And I started thinking through the things that I would expect to see, because I had not watched the match, for this, in fact, to be the case. And I thought, huh, this is a useful exercise. Let me put it out in public so that other people can see what my thought process is when I'm trying to marry my understanding of the stats to what people are seeing on the field. So walk us through that thought process, kind of from a stat standpoint kind of sure where you're starting what kind of stats do you look at first and then how do you kind of dig sure. deeper as you go through that so first always i started the expected goals just because it's the most it's the most effective easy to understand all in number we have to start yep. as a baseline so you look at that and in this particular instance it shows seattle way out in front of, of dallas and so okay next thing i will always look like, look at is just shot totals and because if if you take expected goals and shot totals together it's going to give you a pretty decent context for what kinds of chances people are creating right yep. you know are they creating a few great chances a lot of bad chances a lot of great chances so so really putting those two numbers together gives you that sort of baseline you know sort of slightly more complex baseline and then from there, I'm moving into looking at possession. Because again, what I'm trying to think through in my head is, okay, what do I expect the pattern of the match to be? A team that takes a lot of shots but doesn't play a lot of passes is a lot different from a team that takes a lot of shots while playing a lot of passes first. You know, so 
a, a team that dominates possession but doesn't take a lot of chances is also a team that, to my mind, people will frequently will trick the eye test. Mm. And so I'm, I'm, I'm looking out for that. And then after that, I moved to something a little more ex- esoteric, which is something called post-shot expected goals, which we have at StatsBomb. Yep. And what that does is it differentiates between, right, expected goals is just looking at the quality of the chance itself. It's when the attacker strikes the ball, foot, head, whatever. And how likely is that to become a goal? What post-shot expected goal does is it looks at that chance from basically from the view of the keeper. So it is it has knowledge of how good a strike it was, which is something that a striker can't necessarily control. Right? Strikers don't hit it perfectly all the time, but sometimes they arrow it into the corner. And so post-shot expected goals has knowledge of what those strikes look like. So oftentimes a team that visually looks like they were really dangerous without creating a lot of chances, it's because their post-shot expected goal is a lot higher than you would expect given their expected goal. So then I look at that and I sort of mush it all together and that gives me sort of a sense of what I expect to see when I watch the match. That's kind of what happened in this one, right? Dallas didn't have as many shots, but they looked like good shots based on kind of where they ended up and the types of saves that did or didn't have to be made. So what I ended up saying in the piece is you look at the expected goals and it would say that Seattle would win a little shy of 75% of the time. I think our numbers had it at like 72%, but whatever. Mm-hmm. That precision doesn't matter. Right. But given the skill with which Dallas hit the ball in this match, you might reasonably expect this match to have been one of the 28% of the time that Seattle didn't win. That's how I hold those two different ideas, which are a little bit in tension in my head at the same time. And then as it turns out, right, Seattle stood on their head, kept all of those shots out, and and so the result sort of matches up with the expected goals. But you have this this whole saga in the middle that the top line number doesn't catch. Yeah, it strikes me that some of these stats, you know, you just kind of ran through these different levels of basically shot stats. So many of them, or the useful ones at least, are basically they're trying to quantify what people are saying when you watch the game. You know, right? Like Like, people say, well, they they didn't score, but they had really good shots, or they took a lot of shots, or they I turned mean, into good shots or whatever it is. Everybody who's ever watched the sport has argued, well, we had a lot of chances, but they had better chances. Or we had better chances and, right. you know, maybe you had all the ball, but you didn't ever sh-. Like, everybody qualitatively has these arguments all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and I think why expected goals and its various permutations is a good stat is that it really does just try to rigorously capture those debates in some with some long-term math yeah yeah it's basically it's the vocabulary thing it's right. you're speaking the language of people who play the game coach the game uh whatever it might be i liked this quote you threw in the article i'll go ahead and read it says, all good stats work is a matter of interpretation and context doing analytics right is a matter of improving the guesses and the guesswork and beware of anybody selling absolute certainty about anything to me that's a good encapsulation kind of of how analytics these things can be used well and like you said if someone says i've got a number that defines player quality everything whatever definitively that's when we're in trouble right you know i i I actually i think about baseball a lot uh just because it's such you know comparatively it's the easy sport to do analytics about right and i think about pitch framing and 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 the idea that there was this whole skill in baseball that really exists and really, really can impact performance. And that for the first 10 to 20 years of, of uptake of, of analytics, 
baseball analytics was blind to this to mm-hmm. this skill. It got attributed to pitchers. It was sort right. of laughed off as not a thing that really mattered. And then as people got better at the art of, of applying stats to baseball, they, they found this. But it makes me very conscious of how we phrase what we do and don't yep. know. And it makes me very conscious of coming from a stats perspective and, and, and speaking in absolutes. And so I try to think a lot about, I set expectations for myself a lot expectation tests like if this is true then mm-hmm. that's what we'd expect to see and that's how i that's how i tend to use numbers as i'm integrating it yep. yeah i've said it on twitter i've said it at conferences i feel like so much of the cliche kind of butting of heads between we'll just say scouts and analytics could be smoothed over if people on both sides really would just say this suggests something instead of this proves something or yeah, it proves, looks proves like such a loaded word. <laughs> right. It looks like this instead of this is the way it is. Just language matters so much, especially when you're yeah. trying to break through to someone who's a little bit skeptical. I'm a little sympathetic from the analytic side because they really mm-hmm. did have to break through to get their voices heard at right. all. Yeah. And that did require some let's say stridency yeah. about about their claims. But but certainly, yeah, I think that using this stuff well only works if you have an audience that is opening to receive it. And yeah. and some people you will never. Like some people will not ever open up to right. to that content. But yep. lots of people are going to be in the middle and it's about how you approach it. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so I want to know how you if you're just sitting down to watch a game, you know, no kids, no family in the house, you're just going <laughs> to sit down and watch a game. How do you use and think about data while you're sitting? You're sitting on your couch watching. What's your setup? What are you thinking through while you're watching? Okay, so to some degree, it's the same as what I was talking through about watching a match where I've seen the stats of it, except Mm -hmm. instead of the stats for that match, I have the stats of the teams. I have the stats of the players. I, again, have what I would call a mental model of what I expect the game to look like going in. And then I just have like a, a very basic stats app i mean you know this the kind of stuff that espn.com will, will have right. about a game you know i use stat zone um there are a number of different stat tracking apps that are free that are out there uh, nothing nothing technical really and i am constantly checking those results against what i think i'm seeing there are matches where i will get to halftime and be like wow that team didn't really feel dangerous and i'll look at the shots and it'll be like oh they had nine shots and yep. then I have to go through and think to myself, okay, were they just really not dangerous shots? Maybe. Um, all right, where did or, they come from? Let's see. Right. Oh, they're all, they're all outside the box. Well, okay, that's why they're... that's why it didn't like trigger right. anything in my head. But sometimes it'll be like, oh wait, those three shots that you know were missed badly, so that they didn't trigger my brain to think dangerous opportunity were actually pretty good shots. Mm-hmm. And then I have to recalibrate where I am in watching this match and thinking about, okay. What I saw doesn't maybe quite, you know, it, you have the second input to check it against. And hopefully that gives you a, a more accurate understanding of, of, of what's gone on and what's going on. Yeah, that's what I always tell people, especially ESPN when we're training them. Like, you, you watch the games, like, you know what's going on. The next step is kind of to do exactly that. Pair it with the stats. See if you have a stat to support a point. Maybe it's go against your point. Listen to what your analyst is saying. Uh, try to back him or her up, whatever it might be. It's what I think Steve Zakwani said in the tweet. Like, you got to watch the game and know what's going on. And from right. there, you combine that with numbers. Then we got something. Look, and I think the really interesting stuff are those times when the numbers and what you think you're seeing disagree, right? Yep. Like, 
the the interesting thing is is not then dismissing one or dismissing the other. The interesting thing is understanding the interplay between the two and trying to figure out why your two different inputs right. are telling you such different things. And and that's what I tried to do with the piece a little bit is okay, how do like how do we go through the process then of whether it's tape work, whether it's diving deeper into the numbers, reconciling those things to hopefully get a better understanding of, of what's going on on the field. Yeah, and I thought that was good in the piece. I think there was a there was a header, which you know generally is a low XG shot, but it was placed almost perfectly, so it looked right. super dangerous. And uh, you know the post shot XG was much higher, so that's yeah, kind of that that fills right. in that gap, for example. That exactly, and right and then you know the thing is is that now that shot gets saved, and it sort of would all come out in the wash, right? Like it wouldn't matter to a big picture analysis that that right. actual shot was placed so well because it was saved. There is no real long-term difference between a poor shot that is saved and a great shot that is saved. Yep. Except for the fact that people are watching the match. So if you're trying to accurately describe what people are seeing and experiencing, it is important to understand which of the two routes that shot went down. Yep. Yeah, the ooh factor of sorts yeah, and exactly. how that comes in. Yeah. So if you're coming to something from an opposite angle, let's say you're about to write about, let's say a team, because look at this at a bigger level, with which you're less familiar. What do you kind of look at just from a numbers, from a macro standpoint, to get a sense of what is this team like? You know, I don't know about much about, we'll say, Atalanta a couple years ago, uh, before <laughs> uh, you guys were full-fledged on that bandwagon. What do you start looking at numbers-wise to get a sense of just what a team is playing like? Sure, so you do you do some degree of the same stuff, right? You you, you always want to look at what their ex, you know, expected goals for, XG against is. Yep. You always want to look at their shot totals. But then I think you also want to, those are very quantitative. Mm -hmm. But you really do want to look at qualitative stuff to give you an understanding of how do they accomplish the, the, you know, the end result? How do they create shots? Do they crawl? I mean, and none of this is like high level. None of this is super technical modeling or advanced right. analytics. These are all basic numbers. Do they cross the ball a lot? Do they play the ball around midfield a lot? Does their keeper kick it long or short? How often are they playing passes in their own half versus in the other half? On the flip side of the ball, defensively, where are they doing their defending? You know, you can measure things mm -hmm. like the average distance from their own goal that a defensive action occurs. Right. This is not super rigorous, but it helps give you an understanding of where on the field this team is defending. Are there certain players who are key? Are there certain players that pay a ton of passes? Are there certain players that kind of only touch the ball in the penalty area to shoot? Do their fullbacks play a lot of passes in the opposition third? Are they getting way up the field? All of the things like that, which are not going to help you scout an individual game. They're not necessarily going to be super useful for a coach who's game planning, but they're going to be useful for me watching a game to set the expectation level of what I think this team is going to do, how they're going to play, and then see to what degree then watching them, doing some tape work maybe, agrees or disagrees with what those numbers are saying. So you're aggregating all this data, filtering it through, you know, what you know, or maybe what you don't know. And now you're getting to the point where you're actually doing the writing. I think one of the things that you do well is you combine these stats and eye tests, and then you're able to put it on the page in plain English, for lack of a better term. So what are your kind of keys to using this data well as you're doing the writing? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the thing I shy away from a lot is using numbers just for numbers' sake. Mm -hmm. I think... The thing I do before I write is I use data to help me get comfortable with the claims I'm going to make about a team. You know, if I'm going to say that a team plays primarily down the right wing, 
I will have, before I write that sentence, watched them and then done the stat work to make sure that I'm comfortable with that claim. Right. The way I will use the data in my writing is then as a way to show evidence that that is the case. So if Kimmich for, for Bayern Munich mm-hmm. is an important cog from right fullback when they bring the ball up the field. Right. I will then say, look, here's how many more passes he plays than anybody else. Here's how many attacks run through him when they end up getting a shot, right? My my assertion to you, the, the thing that I am saying to you, that he is a super important cog, here's evidence to support that. But it's very much using numbers and statistics as an evidentiary claim, not as the driving narrative. And now I will say that there's a, there's a fine line here because what you don't want to do is decide what you know is true and then go hunting evidence to support it. What you want to do is use the evidence to help you figure out what you think is true, then tell an audience what you believe to be true, and then further use numbers to support that claim. Um, It's sort of like a three-step process. Yep. And that was very similar to what I would do working with analysts in television. You know, I would hear them say, boy, so-and-so really disappeared. And then you're looking for Let's see if he's accurate and then right. give him that support. So we can go on and say, look, I haven't seen Ronaldo the entire second half. And then he can add, well, he only had you know, two touches in the right, attacking exactly. third. And so you he's know, not just throwing the number out as a thing. It's here's what I think. And right. by the way, I have some proof to back me up. You know, there's a thing I say all the time, which is like, I think a lot of times in media, especially sort of these silly, endless old school, new school type battles, yep. um, analytics is presented as like the a countervailing force to narrative. That it's uh-huh. like that it's like some people want to do narrative and some people want to do numbers. And, and and as far as media is concerned, my my whole thing is that analytics is not against narratives. Analytics mm. is just a tool to help make sure that right. the narratives you're telling are true. Yeah, it's a tool just like anything, whether it's yeah. I mean, just like video is a tool or it's just another way of expressing yeah, the same That's thing right. in a lot and, of different like, I mean, look, you can make bad arguments with numbers. Believe me, oh, I've yeah. seen lots oh, yeah. of bad arguments with numbers. Yep. Um, and the skill of it is making sure that you are are making good arguments, that you're not trying to torture the numbers to say to say things that are that they don't support. Right. Look, it's okay if if your subjective view of a game doesn't match up with the numbers. It doesn't mean you throw out the numbers and it doesn't mean you throw out your subjective view. It means that like sometimes you're going to come to an impasse. Sometimes yeah. you're going to be, I don't understand why these two things match up. Maybe it's something that I'm not understanding in what I'm seeing. Maybe it's something that the numbers are not capturing. But I think that it's important to, to be able to narrow down that gap yep. to understand that that's where we're kind of living. So you mentioned things that numbers don't capture. One of the things I think will be fun to watch in soccer data over the next year, two year, five years, is this player tracking data that we're going yes. that we're starting starting to trickle in. You know, as in where's every player on the field at every second of the game? What is something that you hope to learn as the player tracking data grows in soccer? Sure. So I mean, I think everything we've been talking about so far has been very goals and shots and final third related, mm-hmm. and that's because that's the stuff we can measure pretty well now. Um, and so on the attacking end, that makes that part of life pretty easy. And even on the defending end, you can, you're can you just sort of measuring not letting attackers do those things. Right, it's the opposite, yeah. Yeah, again, there are challenges, but we have pretty good data about doing that. We sh- we really struggle with, with the middle third of the field in, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways. Sort of figuring out what actions in a rigorous way lead to good chances. Figuring out what players not on the ball are doing and, and yeah. how that impacts a possession, how that impacts your chances of, of creating a shot. You know, can we decide... 
can we tell does a player make the right run versus the wrong run? What does a good run do to the defense? What does a bad run do to the defense? And without that data, I think everybody's working with all sorts of really, really smart, advanced, high-level tricks to try to tease out information from the middle third of the field, from passing and possession. But it just it becomes so much easier when you can compile and then put that data in usable form and really start to see a full picture of what 22 players are doing in the middle third of the field. Yeah, the whole where players are relative to each other, how your formation is set up yep. or broken down, those are all... It's going to be really interesting because there's so much... That could be done, and until we really just well, get I mean, the data, then we then we won't know, or look, then we will of, know once we're able to do yeah. it. A lot of soccer analytics right now is following a flashlight around and <laughs> doing a really, really good job of looking at what's under that flashlight and picking it apart. But if you can turn on the floodlights, right, if yeah. you can give yourself all of that other space to look at, and, and, and inevitably, lots of that stuff's going to prove to be not all that important. But some of it is. And understanding what of the stuff that we can't see right now is really important is going to be, I think, kind of game-changing for, yeah. for analytics. So uh, kind of on the future standpoint a little bit, you guys had a stats bomb at a conference a few weeks ago in London. Uh, give me something that you picked out from that that kind of stuck with you about, you know, I mean, it could be the way things are done now or it could be something looking to the future. So a couple things. I, I mean, I think that a lot of what we've been talking about here, a lot of the research presentations were about trying to model passing and trying to figure out if we can follow the ball around the pitch and see what tends to happen. And can we translate that into some overarching structural thing about the game? And it's a challenge. But I thought there were a lot of interesting approaches on um, you know, Karun Singh's paper on called Expected Threat, I think is probably the most elegant and well put together of, of the models that we've seen so far that attempts to, to look at this and does moving the ball to various parts of the field ultimately lead to better, more dangerous chances, just defending portions of the field, keeping the ball out of them, th those kinds of things. So that was one thing that was pretty interesting. The second thing was um, Vasa Dabud of, of Ajax was there and, and she gave a talk. She's the head of their sports science and analytics department. And it was, a lot of it was in the sports science realm, which is something I don't interact with tremendously much so that that's you know physical capabilities stuff like that and she just gave some tremendous examples of doing science in the context of youth development how we train kids what we train kids to do what we look for in them you know how we can basically run scientific experiments by training some kids one way and some kids another way when we don't really know what is the best way to teach things how we ensure that those those um, studies are repeatable and are actually giving us information. And one particular anecdote that, that she talked about was about keepers. And that one thing that has always been looked for in keepers is vertical leap, right? Just the ability right. to jump. And the thing is, is that 60% of the shots that a keeper faces are shoulder level and below. So why are we super concerned with how high they can jump as opposed to how much lateral explosiveness they have, mm -hmm. how they can, you know, spring from side to side. And that has real implications. And the, the genesis of it at Ajax was they had a, a keeper come over from Barcelona who had a very strange looking, very low stance with his legs spread very wide. And they tried to correct his stance. And he said, no, this is how I was taught to do it. <laughs> because of this, the, the lateral explosion. And so they tested it. They, they, they went through the process and then were like, oh, actually, that's right. Now we will train all our keepers that way. And I, I thought that was just a, a fantastic, yeah. interesting talk overall. Yeah, and good open-mindedness just to be yes. willing to 
we were wrong or not fully correct, maybe. Yes. Be a better way of saying it. All right. We're going to wrap things up, run through some favorites of yours. I think we're going to call the segment Playing Favorites, but we'll, <laughs> we'll iterate on this a little bit. So give me your favorite number and why. 11. It's just about my birthday is the first of the month, and I, number one was taken when I needed a jersey, so I took 11, <laughs> and then I always wore 11. Stuck with it. Yep. All right. Your favorite athlete doesn't have to be soccer, any sport. Just kind of your favorite athlete, you know, tends to come in growing up, whatever. Yeah. I mean, the Yankees are my first sports love. So probably like Bernie Williams, yeah. maybe, maybe Mariano Rivera, like that whole era. The, those teams right. are just like they, they hit me in the, you know, the nostalgia feels. Yeah, those are tough decisions you got to make between all those superstar <laughs> Yankees all coming around at the same time. That's too bad. <laughs> I say this as a you know a Royals fan who's actually significantly less bitter than I would have been you know five years ago. I was ago gonna say so. yeah. Yeah. No complaints now. Uh, okay. Favorite game you've ever been to in person? Any sport? That's a really good question. So, I mean, I'm I'm tempted. I've been to a number of Yankees World Series games, all of which are notable and stand out. But I think at the 2015 Women's World Cup, I was at both the U.S. team's semifinal win over Germany, which was from a rooting standpoint just like. Probably the highest stakes yeah. match I'll, I'll, I'll ever be at. But I was also there for the quarterfinal match between Germany and France um, before Germany played the U.S. in the right. semis. And, and those were the three teams that in 2015 were cl considered clearly the three best in the world. And I think yep. you would have found a lot of people willing to argue that France and Germany were one and two. Yep. And the game went to penalties. And I, like, I have never seen, and I, don't, I doubt I'll ever see again, uh, a penalty shootout live for, for those stakes. And yeah. it, was, it was an incredibly dramatic thing to watch. I agree. The, uh, I got to go to the Ghana-Uruguay quarterfinal in the 2010 World Cup. This is yes. after the Suarez handball and all that. And that went to penalties. And my goodness, I mean, the whole stadium's obviously rooting for Ghana because it's in Africa. And yeah, the raw emotion I and mean, penalties are both the best and worst thing ever. Oh, yeah. But the raw emotion at that level is like, you just can't beat that. It's great. Uh, okay. Favorite random poker hand for you. I know you said you used to play poker. So what's your favorite, I, you know, random one, not a good one. Just you always play this hand or whatever it is. The three six of spades. Um, okay. The first time I ever played poker in a casino, I was like 19 years old in, in upstate New York at Turning Stone. And um, I got it on the big blind there was no raise and i flopped a straight flush and i won like a ah. two-hour best hand jackpot so well there then. you go that, that'll stick it with you for, yeah for sure all right and finally favorite thing about living in latvia i know you've been overseas uh, with your wife and such favorite thing about your time in latvia that's a, good, that's a really good question there's a lot of things that are my favorite because it's very easy to live there as an expat cheap season hockey tickets for mm -hmm. for um dino mariga cheap basketball tickets stuff like that but like they have um, their Yanni Festival, which is their midsummer festival, and and Latvia is fairly far north. Okay. Um, so this is like end of June, summer solstice. You only get like four, maybe five hours of darkness at, at night, and it it's an outdoor nature festival. Everybody goes and and sort of goes out to a bonfire and and drinks and parties, and it's. It is it is a lot of fun and a, a fairly distinct cultural thing for for Latvia. So so I'll go with that. Is it Yanni Festival, as in Yanni. like the musician, or no. is it just a, a Latvian I, I, pronunciation? It's a Latvian name. All right. It's, so it's, it's Yanni's not there. Yeah, Ligua and Yanni. It's two days, but yeah, it's basically it is the they have name days for for various names. So it's like so it's 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 the Yan it's Yanni Day basically, Got but it. not not that Yanni. Could have been even better if Yanni was there. <laughs> yeah, if it was about still Yanni. A, a good way to good way to end it, talking about uh, your time in Latvia. So Mike Goodman, managing editor of StatsBomb.com, thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it.
back in the True Media Network studios. I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to Mike Goodman for joining us on the show. You can follow Mike on Twitter at VM underscore L underscore G. You can read his work on statsbomb.com and subscribe to the Double Pivot podcast, which he hosts with Michael Cayley. I'm joined now by Albert Larcata, True Media's Senior Director of Business Development and Data Science. Albert, you have an academic background in stats, went to grad school for it. Uh, what were some of your takeaways from the conversation with Mike? Yeah, I, it, it's funny that the conversation you guys were getting into about sort of not being so definitive in uh, in, in your analysis because you know you don't know what you don't know. Right. That I, I thought Mike's example about uh, catcher framing in baseball was spot on. Baseball is such a well-studied sport by you know 2010, 2011 even. Uh, that just wasn't there yet. You know, teams weren't using it. Media hadn't picked up on it yet. But certainly, catcher framing will save teams several runs a year. So that's a great example. And obviously, in soccer, that's bound to happen. There's bound to be things that uh, that we just haven't picked up on yet. But anyway, it, it kind of th- that whole conversation reminded me a little bit of the uh, stats academic Twitter, if you will. <laughs> There's a lot of the Twitters I directly follow. Oh yeah. <laughs> Football analytics, uh, soccer analytics, UCF, all of that. Most importantly, UCF, right? National champions, that's right. So anyway, uh, Statsec academic Twitter is always up in arms about some you know model that comes out or some study that comes out that doesn't have proper confidence intervals or some form of uncertainty in the model. Um, in Stats grad school, that's what you study, regression, sampling theory, experimental design, all these classes that are basically about uncertainty and how you kind of have to control for it so yeah it's spot on the people who are publishing articles and you know putting out hot takes if you will about being so definitive about about stuff when whether it's numbers based or not numbers based it's sports there's so much uncertainty you're just anything you say should be have a you know degree of uncertainty to it and I think that's especially important when we're talking you know specifically here expected goals in a single game I think the margin for error is understood by people who use the numbers regularly and not always by those who may even have a general understanding of them. For example, when I tweet out single game expected goals numbers, I'll get people frequently asking about the value of a single shot. I'll tell them and they'll say, well, it didn't factor in that this guy isn't left footed or the full transition effect that was in play here, whatever it might be. And that's all part of this confidence interval that regular users understand. And when we're communicating with people who are less familiar, I know I, and I think we sometimes forget about our built-in understanding, and we don't fully portray that uncertainty, and that just leads to communication confusion. Right, right. I can't remember if it was you or Mike, but I think it was Mike's one that brought up how, in some ways, the the analyst crowd in sports had to be a little bit more bold, (laughs) perhaps, just to sort of get their voices heard, both on the media side and on the team side. So, um, But at this point, you know... rational people will see that they're even in a sport like soccer where there's still tons more we need to learn there's still value in this so yeah perhaps it's it's time for for us as a analyst crowd to start with the uncertainty talk and start kind of not hedging per se but just putting a bit more uncertainty around the types of takes that we're putting out there yeah and he was right about the certainty that analysts often need to portray i think when you're in sports and probably other fields too, you're dealing with people who are really good and confident at what they do, operating at the highest level. And I think if you come in with weakness or hesitancy or uncertainty, that doesn't always play well. So Mike's right that sometimes you have to 
almost overcompensate for that. And the danger in doing that is that then the confidence interval doesn't come across in the confidence you have to portray. And that's a tricky line to walk. Right, exactly. One thing I like that he said, basically the whole premise of the article really was trying to identify the gap between stats and the eye test. And I think that's a good, if not obvious point. People often get tied up in the fact that stats and the eye test say or suggest different things. And instead of focusing on that as a problem, we can often focus on that as an opportunity to learn something. So what Mike's article did was dive into why XG and the eye test differed on this game. He drilled down into XG, post-shot XG, and find things that bridge that gap. And ultimately, that makes everyone better, whether you find a reason or a skill or a way to make a model better, whatever it might be. And we seem to say this every show. It's not old school versus new school. It's not stats versus the eye test. It's both and. They're working together toward the same goal. And when you can find ways to tie everything together better and you're all going the same direction, that is really the interesting part of it all. Okay, I'll get off the soapbox again. Thanks, Albert, for joining us. My thanks again to Stats Bomb Managing Editor Mike Goodman for joining us on the show. Next week, we'll be talking baseball fielding metrics with Mark Simon of Sports Info Solutions. Mark votes for the Fielding Bible Awards. He's one of the most knowledgeable baseball people I know, particularly when it comes to fielding. So that will be a fun and educational conversation. Thanks to everyone who continues to share the podcast. Thank you for the feedback and suggestions we've gotten so far. Send us feedback via email, expectedvalue at truemedianetworks.com, or on Twitter at truemediasports and at Paul Carr. And please continue to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you find the podcast. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone here at True Media Networks, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. Mm